It is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellens. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the tension of housing, the region's only landfill. This patch of ground is bounded by rivers, roads, and natural gas pipelines. It just cannot continue forever, but there doesn't seem to be a plan B. Plus, digging into forgotten Washington County history. The white building used to be the Ozark Cleaners. It's now painted white. It used to be yellow brick. That's where the first real set-down theater was, the Lyric, right there. And 4,000 backpacks will be handed out to Northwest Arkansas students this weekend. I try to um, connect with folks in the community and get donations throughout the year, purchase backpacks as they're on clearance. First, we hand you the news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville invites guests to discover American art, architecture, and 120 acres of Ozark nature. Visitors can also enjoy family-friendly activities and programs and a variety of food and drink experiences. More information at crystalbridges.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, we'll find out what it takes to get the supplies for 4,000 backpacks, then distribute tickets to Northwest Arkansas students from kindergarten to high school to get the backpacks, then finally <laughs> distribute those backpacks. Samaritan Community Center this weekend will host its 21st annual Fresh Start Backpacks for Kids event. More about that in today's second half hour. First, the city of Tawnytown is in a legal effort to stop the expansion of the EcoVista Class 4 landfill. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports it serves as Northwest Arkansas's landfill and is almost full. The city's brief in support of motion for summary judgment states there is no municipal approval for the expansion. It's almost 5.30 in the afternoon on a Thursday in May, and people are pulling into St. Joseph's Catholic Church's parking lot off Highway 412 in Tawnytown. The Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality, or ADEQ, is holding a public input meeting on a proposed expansion to the Waste Management EcoVista Class 1 landfill. Folks that are coming in, if you want to, if you're, uh, please sign in on the sign-in sheet, which I see people doing. And if you want to offer a comment this evening on the draft Class 1 permit expansion for Echo Vista, please fill out a comment card and leave it with one of the personnel from the Arkansas Department of Energy and Environment, and we would be pleased to hear. This type of landfill accepts municipal solid waste and is located on the southeast side of town. The landfill serves northwest Arkansas, and as the region's population grows, more trash is produced and collected. There are about 70 to 100 people sitting on foldable chairs or standing up in the back listening to ADEQ's presentation. Hello everyone, uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming out. Uh, as Jared said, my name is Nick Jones. I'm Earlier in March, a different permit to expand EcoVista's Class 4 landfill was approved. A Class 4 landfill only accepts non-hazardous, bulky debris that decomposes slowly. This includes construction and demolition trash, stumps and furniture. After this, the city of Tawnytown filed an appeal with the Arkansas Pollution Control and Ecology Commission. 
Ross Noland, a lawyer for the city of Tawnytown, says requiring municipal approval is one of the main points in the city of Tawnytown's brief in support of summary judgment. It appears that we're going to have a hearing on the summary judgment motions in August. We will implore the administrative hearing officer to issue a recommended decision to the commission granting our motion for summary judgment. Um, and of course, our lead claim there is that there is no local approval of 22.203 required local approval, um, and therefore this permit should not have been issued. Permit modification, excuse me. In 1997, the city granted its approval for the siting of the landfill and in 2018 passed a resolution to expand the Class 1 and Class 4 landfills. Tawnytown City Council passed two newer resolutions this past year and this year. In its brief, the town states it withdrew its support from the expansion through the resolutions. In 1997, the city granted its approval for the siting of the landfill and in 2018 passed a resolution to expand the Class 1 and Class 4 landfills. Tawnytown City Council passed two newer resolutions this past year and this year. In the brief, the town states it withdrew its support from the expansion through the resolutions. ADEQ did not get back to Ozarks at large in time for this story, but in the department's brief it argues the city's reliance on this rule requiring municipal approval is misplaced and does not apply. The department states that the city gave approval before the most recent resolutions. In the department's brief it says a city needs to adopt restrictions on landfills with a countywide land use plan. According to ADEQ's brief, there is no showing of a Washington County land use plan. The Arkansas Pollution Control and Ecology Commission is scheduled to hold a meeting this month. Some public comments submitted to the department express support for the expansion because it's the region's landfill. And if the expansion is not approved, then trash would need to go to other landfills further away, resulting in higher costs. But most of the people offering public comment at the May meeting were against expanding the landfill. Residents spoke about their experiences with headaches and expressed environmental and health concerns at the meeting and in submitted comments. Good evening. My name is Angela Russell. I'm the mayor of Tawnytown. I come before you tonight to address the Class 1 expansion of Waste Management Inc. of Vista Landfill. State Representative Steve Unger's district is next to Tawnytown. He spoke against approving the landfill's expansion at the meeting, and he says handling trash is a regional issue. And the fact that with our growing population, none of the leadership in the region has realized that even if waste management gets everything it wants out of the state and it continues to grow, this patch of ground is bounded by rivers, roads, and natural gas pipelines. It just cannot continue forever, but there doesn't seem to be a plan B. For Ozarks at Large, in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 1, I'm Anna Pope. Monday, ADEQ regulators notified the landfill it approved a permit for a 10-acre expansion to EcoVista's Class 1 landfill. This is Ozarks at Large. You're listening to Ozarks at Large. I'm Daniel Carruth. So while the area's landfill is starting to overflow, 
we wanted to go to the source and ask what we as consumers can do to help reduce some of that trash. And luckily, that was also a question that Haley Love asked herself about two years ago. Love owns Hippie Hollow Refill in the Fiesta Square Shopping Center in Fayetteville. So we're a sustainability shop um, that focuses on refills for your home for things such as cleaning products, skincare, home goods um, that are all in a refillable option for people so they can bring their own containers. Um, the idea is that you just refill using things that you already have you know, from home, like if you had an extra jar. Or, and then we also have lots of reusable items, you know, like reusable bags, reusable home goods, anything to kind of cut out single-use plastic waste. She says a lot of first-time customers can find the move towards sustainability daunting, but she says her store aims to make the process easier one reusable item at a time. Lots of compostable uh, home and kitchen products. In the front of her store, Love shows off tables arranged with glass gallon containers and jugs full of refillable detergent, soaps, and cleaning liquids. So um, out here you basically have all of your liquid refills. It's all done by weight, so people refill as much or as little as they want. They don't have to fill a whole container if they don't want to, um, or you know, if they do, they can also stock up. Um, We also have sustainable products along the walls, like even our candles are refillable. So like the idea is that that could be your last candle that you buy. You just bring it back and keep refilling that same candle vessel over and over. And Heather Elsey, an environmental educator with the city of Fayetteville, says businesses like Love's are making it easier for people to make those choices. She says the biggest problem she sees when it comes to sustainability efforts is that people often start and end with recycling. I always encourage people, that's awesome that you're making that step. But when they come to me and they're like, why can't I throw this away or why can't or, you know, recycle this? It's like, well, you know, maybe we could look at an alternative that is recyclable. Maybe you just this isn't something that you need. There's an alternative here. So really trying to look at those first two steps and having that conversation with people like how can we really reduce and reuse. Fayetteville offers recycling for most glass, aluminum, cardboard, and plastics labeled numbers one and two, but not numbers three through seven. Elsie says buying higher quality items from clothes to vacuum cleaners that will last longer also helps reduce waste and save money. She says borrowing is an option, too. There's a really great opportunity to bring community together. I've always loved those big, fancy um, mixers, especially around the holidays, but that's the only time I use it. So I borrow my neighbors. There's no need for me to be putting more, you know, waste out there and taking on, you know, more also just in my home when I can just borrow and share with my neighbors and the community. Another big step she says consumers can take is in tackling food waste through composting. Elsie says according to an audit commissioned by the city of Fayetteville, 18% of the city's trash comes from compostable food. Food waste, it's an organic material. When those types of materials end up in the landfill, they get covered over and actually turn into methane, which is 28 times more potent you know, of a greenhouse gas emission. 
The city has a curbside compost collection three times a week for businesses and free food waste collection buckets for residents. Also, so most people think about backyard, you know, composting. It's just fruits and vegetables. Our compost facility, um, it's a commercial facility. It gets really hot, over 165 degrees. So we can take those um, those items that you wouldn't normally compost, uh, cooked meats, cheeses, bones, breads, pasta, um, those heavy items you would never put in a backyard compost. Ultimately, LZ says sustainability shouldn't be stressful and consumers are not alone. Because it's going to take all of us taking that first step and then asking, okay, what's next? For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. The state of Arkansas will be able to use more than $5.5 million from the USDA to improve food systems. The Arkansas Department of Agriculture will receive $5.6 million for the Resilient Food Systems Infrastructure Program. That program will concentrate on funding for activities and improve the middle of the supply chain operations, among other objectives. Eligible entities include agricultural producers, processors, nonprofit organizations, tribal governments and institutions. Funds could be made available to support the construction of a new facility or modernize or expand an existing facility, including expansion and modifications to existing buildings or construction of new buildings at existing facilities. Attention KUAF listeners, your favorite monthly concert series, The Lunch Hour, is taking the stage and receiving national recognition. From the hard-hitting raps about Searcy, Arkansas by Eddie Canyon to the beautiful electronic classical music by Amos Cochran, see some of your favorite local artists sharing a platform with artists like Leon Bridges, Saba, and more. All you have to do is go to NPR Live Sessions and search KUAF. Ahead on today's show, Hidden Fayetteville. J.B. Hogan, a writer and historian, is naming his next book Forgotten Fayetteville in Washington County. And sometimes forgotten is in plain sight. Because you go, what are you talking about, Forgotten Fayetteville? Everybody knows Collier's Drugstore, right? They've been here forever. Well, what I'm saying is you don't know probably about the original Mel Collier from Prairie Grove who came to Fayetteville in 1917, I believe, invested in the Red Cross Drugstore up on the square and look at what we have today, you know, a company that's got you know, stores all over northwest Arkansas. Resurrecting stories, people, and places of Fayetteville for an upcoming book. Our conversation with J.B. Hogan in about seven minutes on Ozarks at Large. University of Arkansas political science professor Patrick Stewart recently published a book examining the 2016 and 2020 presidential primary debates. The book focuses on the role played by the studio audience during debates through their applause, cheering, laughter, and booing of candidates, and how this affects reporters and everyone watching at home. Our debates are the one time during the electoral cycle that we're able to take a look at our candidates and get an unbiased look at who they are. They're not stage managed, they aren't preformed, they aren't already edited into a specific sort of marketing brand during the debates. We get to see them and how they react to questions and to comments in real time. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill. Listen at KUAF.com, at ArkansasResearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelts. I'm Matthew Moore. The backers of a proposed ballot measure to offer Arkansas voters a chance to repeal the recently passed Arkansas Learns Act say they may have actually collected enough signatures after all. 
Monday, organizers told reporters that they thought they were about 500 signatures short. But a press release Tuesday indicates an internal recount gives them hope they did have a sufficient number of names. The group, Citizens for Arkansas Public Education and Students, or CAPES, says they had not accounted for multiple packs of petitions that went uncounted. The Arkansas Secretary of State's office told Talk Business and Politics the counting of the signatures is underway. A pair of Arkansas Republicans are reacting differently to yesterday's indictment of former President Donald Trump. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton says the former president did nothing more than engage in constitutionally protected activities. Political activities and free speech protected by the First Amendment. Um, You don't have to agree with him. You don't have to think he was right. But I I don't see how these charges can go forward without a serious constitutional challenge from the former president. Senator Cotton made his comments last night on Fox News. He also says special counsel Jack Smith is a political zealot. Former Arkansas governor and current Republican presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson says the former president has weaponized the American justice system. Speaking on the podcast Press Advance with Johanna Masca yesterday, the former governor again said the former president should leave the race for the White House. Because uh, you've got to put the country first. And, you know, everybody wants to run for president. But our country is the most important thing. And this is going to be such a distraction. And so the next year, we're not going to be talking about Uh, the economic issues that our families face, or border security. He's going to be in court. He's going to be defending himself. And all of his energy needs to be devoted to that. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a distraction for our nation. And that's the reason that most people under those circumstances would say uh, the presidency is too important. The interview took place just before the latest set of indictments were officially announced. The House Information Technology and Energy Committee met yesterday to talk about crypto mining. Crypto mines are large groups of computers tasked with harvesting cryptocurrency, and a number of Arkansas residents who live near them say they're too loud. During over an over four-hour meeting, legislators listened to complaints from the public and testimony from experts about crypto mines. Tom Hartford with the Arkansas Blockchain Council said companies should be willing to adhere to sound ordinances if they build a crypto mine in Arkansas. At the border, it should not be higher than 60 decibels of the property of the industrial site. That's in the language that a lot of municipalities have been considering. We support that very strongly. Um, The cost would cut into a fraction of their profits. Republican Senator Brian King, who has talked about calling a special session to repeal a bill deregulating crypto mines, was concerned about energy usage. People are talking about it, that we're having this ceiling out there concern. So while you have the supply right now is one thing, but looking five, eight, ten years down the road, we got a problem. The meeting came as Act 851, a law deregulating crypto mines, went into effect on the same day. Talk Business and Politics reports Haynes Brands will be closing its hosiery plant in Clarksville at the end of next month. Talk Business says at one point the factory employed as many as 570 people, though the company will not say how many people work there now. The plant, which was relocated to Clarksville from Honduras in 2015, was once one of the largest hosiery knitting facilities in the world. Haynes Brand has announced it is selling its entire United States sheer hosiery operations. There is a name change for one of the oldest institutions of higher learning in Arkansas. Yesterday, Philander Smith College in Little Rock became 
Philander Smith University. The school was first established in 1877 as Walden Seminary before changing to Philander Smith College five years later. The school began as the first attempt west of the Mississippi to make education available to freedmen. In making the change, university officials say they plan to expand academic offerings and research opportunities. Northwest Arkansas Community College is hiring its first full-time athletic director. The college announced yesterday Brooke Brewer will take the reins on a program that launched in 2021 with men's and women's cross-country teams. For the past three years, she's been a teacher and the coach of dance and cheer at Bentonville West High School. Before that, she taught and coached for seven years in the Alma School District. And a new member of the Arkansas Razorback women's track team next year will be arriving with some impressive hardware in tow. Shanti Jackson was named the 2022-23 USA Today High School Girls Track and Field Athlete of the Year. Jackson competed at South Granville High School in Creedmoor, North Carolina. This summer, she broke the national high school record in the 100 meters by a half second. This is Ozarks at Large. If you've lived in Fayetteville for just a small amount of time, a long amount of time, or maybe you've just known of Fayetteville, you probably don't know all of its history. I'm not saying J.B. Hogan knows all of its history, but he knows more than you and me. J.B. Hogan is with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. You're a novelist. You're a historian. Do I call you? You're a poet as well. I'm a poet too, yes. I'm doing a lot of poetry right now, as a matter of fact. Well, we're here to talk more about your historian hat. Right. Uh, the book, Forgotten Fayetteville and Washington County, is going to be out very soon? Uh, we're hoping for August 19th, which okay. is the Washington County Historical Society Ice Cream Social. But I think <laughs> it's a really tight thing right now. But it is completed as far as your Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Since I haven't seen it, you haven't gone to the galleys yet and that sort of thing. So it's not, it's not ready to order. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, well, let's talk about... How you determined what is Forgotten Fayetteville in Washington County? Yeah, so actually, since you and I have talked about this a lot in the past, this is all a result of my research on the baseball book, My uh, Angels in the Ozarks. Uh, These were all offshoot things. I just kept seeing and discovering different stories. And what I'm saying is that most of these stories are about things, people, events, that have probably completely drifted out of the communal mind. And so that was what I was focusing on. And I also want to point out on this one, it's, it's, it's kind of the definition of eclectic. I mean, it has no rhyme or reason. It's just whatever story struck me, I did it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm looking at the table of contents, and there are some that I think, okay, I'm interested in that because I know a little bit about that, like the history of Collier Drugstore. It's been around right. for more than 100 years. Exactly, and, and that's, a, that's a great one to start with because you go, what are you talking about, Forgotten Fayetteville? Everybody knows Collier's Drugstore, right? They've been here forever. Well, what I'm saying is you don't know probably about the original Mel Collier from Prairie Grove who came to Fayetteville in like 1917, I believe, invested in the Red Cross Drugstore up on the square, and look at what we have today. You know, a company that's got you know stores all over Northwest Arkansas. Did you say the Red Cross? Yeah, Red Cross Drugstore is on the north side of the of the uh, square. It was the second building in from the east on the north side, 
right next to the Boston store for people that are here from a long time, in between the Boston store and McElroy Bank. Okay. If for people to try to have that for a reference. <laughs> so, right, Collier Drugstore, as you mentioned, has been here more than 100 years. You walk by it and, and you go, okay, I think I know where I can begin to find some history of that. Carl Collier right. has been working there for some time. Who is Mel's? Okay, I went, the person I used for, or helped me the most there was young Mel, I call him. Okay. Young Mel Collier. Who is the great-grandson? I think he would be the great-grandson of the, of the original Mel. But what about some of these others? You said that while you were researching Angels in the Ozarks, the baseball book, you found some of these others. Where would you find them? Uh, in the newspaper. I was researching the, new, the uh, Fayetteville Daily Democrat slash Northwest Arkansas Times. And they would just be there, you know, some horrible story or something like the asphyxiation story we, that's on there in 1936, stuff like that. What in the world? This horrible, you know, tragedy and scandal that happened. And uh, so, so I, my eyes sometimes, you, you focus on crime stories sometimes, mm -hmm. but not always. There's other stories as well. But the very first one I'll, I'll mention, the very first story I wrote, wait, let me, let me level set this. What we have here is we have 18 historical essays, articles. They're the first 18 articles I wrote for the Flashback, the Journal of the Washington County Historical Society. Mm -hmm. And what I did is I put them in chronological order I rather see. than the order I wrote them. The very first one I did was the uh, death of uh, Black Patrolman Lim McPherson in April of 1928. And I was so surprised to find out we had a black patrolman in 1928 that I had to pursue that. And that was the first one. Since that time, I found out there was actually a patrolman before him. Oh. Hired in 1923, a man named Sid Jackson. So, you, you mentioned the asphyxiation, but the title in the table of contents is Cabin Orgy Deaths. Yeah, yeah. So that's a little bit more sensational. It What's is, happening It is here? definitely sensational. Yeah. Uh, okay, it was so— I'm And don't give away too much. We want to yeah, read about it. But yeah, yeah, sure. But uh, it was some local folks here— they were drinking. This is like, at the, I think it was 36. The, we're still in a kind of funny place with alcohol after, you know, the prohibition's gone, but the state and the city. Anyway, so what's scandalous about it is that the, the people were drinking at a bar, which was kind of off limits sort of in a way. Mm -hmm. And they included like a married woman, a young woman who's maybe just barely of age, that kind of thing. And they were drinking, which was a big deal. And they were partying, mm -hmm. and they went to the Uncle John's tourist camp up here on North College, and they went in there and partied all night. And it was cold winter, so, uh, December 7th, I think, of 36. And the windows were sealed tight, and they were asphyxiated by the gas stove. All of them died. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, it's a horrendous story, horrendous story. But it just leaped out at me. Now, one thing about talking with a historian who spent a lot of time researching a particular topic or place or subject is that you sometimes throw these things out like the rest of us know. Oh. You said Uncle John's Tourist Camp? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, in the late 20s, uh, when automobiles started getting really big all over, mm -hmm. uh, a number of camps, they call auto camps, started opening up. And they were wonderful, neat little places. I stayed in one up in Maine. It's just like that. And they just had little tiny cabins around. Oh. City Park had one. We had The City Park Company had one down in the part that goes by the tennis courts. There was a series of little cabins. And people would drive in. They'd stay in a little cabin. I'm glad you brought up Wilson Park because you have a chapter about Wilson Park in yeah. here as well. There is a wonderful photograph in the restaurant Feed and Folly that shows a Wilson Park from a long time ago when there was a pond. Yes. And, and it's taken from below the pond. You see Old Main yes. rising above it. And if 
you haven't lived in Fayetteville in the past. You, you might not know what that is. And, and my wife, Laura, and I were looking at it, trying to figure out what was this vantage point. But it was Wilson Park when it had, a, like, a lake. Well, actually, I've walked up to that exact spot so I get that perspective. It's slightly up prospect up yeah. the hill and looking back. And that, of course, is Trent's Pond. A.L. Trent uh, was, had privately owned that park, but he, he allowed the public to use it. Was, I think I might have mentioned that to you before. It's one of my favorite characters in our history. Very civic-minded to do something like that. But it was called Trent's Pond. And he filled it with that spring water there. The, what's now the ball field, that's Trent's Pond. Okay. That's exactly what it was. And they had a little boating and swimming and stuff. And you can imagine how cold that water probably was. Boating and swimming. So it was big. I well, mean, it was big. The, the, whole, the whole ball field, basically. Okay. Is it, I mean, the, the ball field, was, that was leveled in the early 50s to make the ball field, which was the old Trent's Pond area. So it was Trent's Pond, but we call it Wilson Park. Yeah, Wilson Park. It's Wilson Park because Charles Morrow Wilson sold the last big chunk of land to the west, to the city in 1945. And he wanted it named after his mother, mm-hmm. Maddie Morrow Wilson. That's actually its official name. And the the whole chunk of the Wilson Park that's from like the tennis courts all the way over to Wilson Avenue, right? We used to be called Wilson's Pasture, and that's the part that Charles Morrow Wilson sold to the city. It uh, went made the, the park went from like five and seven eighths to sixteen and seven eighths size, a huge amount of land. Mm. You're a historian who has written about both things that you're trying to find, and it sounds like some of these things found you. Which is more fun? Uh, that is a really good question. I think, well, the ones that find you, they're almost organic. They just mm-hmm. kind of appear. I kind of like finding them sometimes. Like, for example, I found the, the Lynn McPherson story. I wasn't looking for it. I was looking to, for when W.S. Campbell's book came out on, you know, the 100 Years of Fayetteville during the centennial. Mm-hmm. And then there it was. So that's almost both things at one time, in a sense. I wasn't looking for the story, but it was there. I was looking for a different story. And so then you went looking, yeah. It. Yeah, and then I, then I just went off that way. Because you might remember a few years ago for that Ollie here in town, I taught a class called uh, Murder and Mayhem, the Dark Side of Fayetteville History. Mm-hmm. And so I have all, it's nothing but that stuff. You also have a chapter about Fayetteville's old movie houses. Oh. Do we know when the first movie house was here? Uh, sort of. It was kind of a, at first they had, uh, I'm forgetting the name now, the uh, air domes. They were just, it was like a building, no roof, walls, and just a, th- you know, a screen in the back, and you paid a nickel or something to come in and watch the movies. The first real set-down theater was the Lyric, and it was originally an air dome down in Dixon Street. Then it moved in the center of North Block just off the square. Mm-hmm. And then the, the white building used to be the Ozark Cleaners. It's now painted white. It used to be yellow brick. Right. That's where the first real set-down theater was, the Lyric. Right there, beautiful little theater. Uh, do we? How much about the interior do we know? Was it theater seating? Was it? You, could you hear the projector? Well, I think my guess is it was just kind of chairs. Right. right. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they. Probably the first one that would have seating like that would be. I'm trying to remember the dates on these guys now. Probably the Ozark, mm-hmm. which of course wasn't a movie theater to begin with, but right. it was later. But it would have had real nice seats right away. Of course, the palace, when it was built, was built with seats. I was thinking of the Royal, which was on the south side. That was the cowboy movie, the kid movie when I was a kid. And I'm just going to say that was, you talk about fun, and I loved doing that one. I loved looking up the old movies. And there were so many strange movie theaters that came and went, the Princess, the whatever. One was called the Bijou Dream Theater. 
which I thought was some weird name turned out. It was a, a chain. A chain bijou, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I, I just love that. You know, the uh, uh, Frank Barr was the first guy, one of the, the first big guy. E.C. Robertson had a little theater on the east side called The Victory. And then uh, uh, Mr. Sonneman, W.S. Sonneman, came to town in 1925, bought the Royal from the Bud Brothers on that side, on the south side. And then he built the palace where The Victory was, which is that was my favorite theater, the palace. Sometimes mention these names like you knew them. Oh, yeah. You must feel like in some ways I you do. know them. There's certain ones I do feel like I've, I've known them. I've read so much stuff about Mr. <laughs> Sonneman, for example. And he owned all the theaters at one time in town, all of them. He built the York and he owned the Ozark, the Palace, and the Royal all at one time. Mm. He had everything. And uh, But one of the guys I mentioned before, uh, A.L. Trent's one of the guys I feel like I know really well. I feel like Frank Barr as well because he had a kid's orchestra, Frank Barr, that played around town. And uh, another guy that I feel like I knew was uh, uh, A.F. Wolf, who built the admin building. He had a real interesting life and kind of a sad life. He died real young. Made a fortune and then died real young. But he built... The admin building, he built a wonderful Arkansas building on Mount North, which is long gone. But yeah. he did. So there's certain there's certain people, certain historians. I feel like uh, the first I consider James H. Van Hoos to be the first reliable historian, and I really feel connected to him. All right, I don't want you to give away the story, but there oh, is no. a, a, a a chapter titled "How a 1939 Car Wreck Near West Fork." Yeah. Changed American history. That's a bold title. It's a big one, isn't it? That's big time. Yeah. <laughs> what that's talking about is uh, the University of Arkansas president, uh, John C. Futrell, mm-hmm. longest serving, I believe, 20 years, 30 years, something like that. He was coming back from Little Rock in September 1939 and was killed in a car wreck down by West Fork. Well, in the process of getting the new president, there was a lot of local power, ah. including Roberta Fulbright. Who had, who had backed Carl Bailey for governor, who was the governor, and her son, J.W. Fulbright, a, a temporary junior professor, was elevated to president. Of the, yeah, a young man at the time. Very right? young man. He was elevated to president of the University of Arkansas over Dean Waterman, head of the law school, and other really big-time big time professors. And But he turned out to be really popular. He was very popular, so we, you can't say anything about that. But it was an amazing power mm-hmm. thing to me. And so, and then J.W. becomes, because of the way Arkansas, in those days, all the way through the 60s, our people were elected basically perpetually. He became one of the most powerful men in the history of the United States. And an absolute, you know, he's the first guy to turn, first public public official to turn against the Vietnam War. So he was the absolute darling of the left Mm -hmm. in the 70s. And so, so you see what I mean? That's what I meant by change the course of American history. Are there were there any little facts that you came up with and you just haven't been able to flesh them out yet? Like, oh, this is mentioned, but I can't. Well, one of the things I have trouble with is the follow-on to a story. Mm. For example, in the Lim McPherson story, the man that was charged and tried and convicted of killing him, Everett Williams. I don't know whatever happened to Everett Williams. Uh, mm. He went to the state pen, and and one time I saw an obituary. The, of a man named Everett Williams who looked like the right time, but but I don't have any idea. So there's things like that. Yeah, there's lots of that. We know that there was a Bonnie and Clyde connection to Fayetteville, a robbery of a grocery store. Um, yeah. Pretty Boy Floyd or any of those folks ever in Washington County? Yeah, well, they were in Washington County and, I, and in Benton County. I, I, I told uh, Nate Custer, remember him? I had mm-hmm. an interview with him one time. 
I have a family member, everybody probably does, <laughs> who was at, the, I think it was in Benton County, at a, at a bank when Pretty Boy Floyd robbed it, and he said he came out and gave money to people. Huh. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but that's why nobody would rat on these guys right. when the banks were failing and taking their farms and stuff. And then you get this guy goes in there and says, I'll just take some of it back. And if he, if he gave you two bucks in 1930, you'd probably think of him as a hero forever. <laughs> But wait, there's more forgotten. More forgotten fable in Washington County is going to come out this oh, year too. Thank you. No, it's going to be okay. two years from now. Oh, two years. And thank you for bringing that up. Uh, for that one, I, w- I wanted to do more, and so I enlisted the aid of our friend Susan Park Spencer from Prairie Grove, former KUAF employee. Exactly, and yeah. a terrific local historian yes. herself. And she and I had worked on some projects together. And what we wanted to do, and we did. It's all. It's already almost done. We wanted more women's history, mm-hmm. more out-in-the-county history, more black history, more Native American history. Uh-huh. And so, it, you know, mine was just like an eclectic grab, I mean, just whatever story grabbed me. But this one, we wanted to get that. We wanted to broaden that out. And I think I'm hoping people will like this one. And I think if they like this one, they're going to like that one as much or more because there's a, lots of great stuff. And one of the things that's interesting to me is we had worked together I, I would ask if when it comes out, see if you can tell, other than the topic, which articles she wrote and which oh, I wrote. Interesting. I think I was so surprised. I feel like our writing style, whatever reason, they're the same kind of writing style. And I was really pleased with that because I don't think you'll get any jarring kind of thing. Right. Like this I, chapter is well, wildly different. Well, I'll give different. you an example from the F- Forgotten Fever. I finished the book on the early history of Drake Field. Mm-hmm. My uh, late brother-in-law, Kirby Essis, who's yeah. actually on another article about him too, he did all that preliminary work, and I finished it for him after he passed. That was so hard because I called him Pops. Pops and I, our writing styles could not possibly be different, more different. It was really hard. It took me the ages to try to blend that in there. But with Susan, it was just like really right. seamless, basically. Do you ever think that there may be someone in 2081 going for Fayetteville history and pulling this book and like, well, thank you, J.V. Hogan, for writing about this? I hope that that's true because this is something I tell my friend Tony Wapple all the time about his yeah. books. You know Tony well. Yeah. I tell him all the time, 100 years from now— People are going to use your books, and hopefully they will see mine too, the same way that we see W.S. Campbell's book or Kent Brown's wonderful illustrated history of Fayetteville, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yes, it is the hope, and we hope that we do not you know, introduce any errors into the historical record and correct them sometimes if we can, which happens from time to time. We'll find things that were wrong, and we correct it. Fingers crossed, The Creek Don't Rise, Forgotten Fayetteville in Washington County by J.B. Hogan, ready by August 19th in the Washington County uh, Historical Society's Ice Cream Social. But if not, we'll keep folks up to date when it comes right out. Right on. I'm, I, I'm into self-promotion, so, so I'll let everybody know. I appreciate it. Jerry, thanks so much for coming Thank by. you, Kyle, very much. Yesterday, Matthew and I gave you a list, not a complete one, but a list nonetheless of some of the activities you could take part in over the next few days. Today, convert your weekly calendar 
to a monthly one. We're going to give you advance notice of some events happening later this month and beyond. The new season for Theater Squared kicks off August 16th with Dial M for Murder. The 1954 Hitchcock film is remembered for its sly approach to murder and detective work. Anyway, that did it. It must have put the fear of God into them because the letters stopped and we lived happily ever after. It was funny to think that just a year ago I sat in that Knightsbridge pub actually planning to murder her. And I might have done it if I hadn't seen something that changed my mind. Well, what did you see? I saw you. It's Ray Moland, up to no good in the film classic. This is a new adaptation of the play that inspired Hitchcock's film. The play opens August 16th, and it will then run through September 10th. The Fort Smith International Film Festival is Friday, August 25th, and Saturday, August 26th. We just sent out those notifications, and once you send out the notifications, you start getting all these people tagging you from all over the world, and you get to see their excitement of, like, our film is in, you know, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and they're posting from, of course, you know, Ukraine, you know, the, 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 we got our Russian person posted. And so all over the world, Spain, all these places. And that's, that's one of the things that I love is now we have people in other countries talking about Arkansas. That's Brandon Chase Goldsmith, executive director of the festival. General admission tickets start at $15. That's a steal, yeah, honestly. Is. Yeah, and it is. All the films will be screened at Temple Live. Many more details at Fort Smith Film. And the Cherokee National Holiday will be observed September 1st through the 3rd this year. The weekend will commemorate the signing of the 1839 Cherokee Nation Constitution. The celebration in Tahlequah is this year carrying the theme, Building Our Nation, Strengthening Our Sovereignty. The weekend will include the Cherokee Artisan Market, the National Holiday Art and Quilt Shows, all kinds of sports and games, including softball and basketball tournaments, as well as competition in blowgun, stickball, and a game I have wanted to see for years, Chunky. Here's how it works. Yes. One player rolls a stone. As that stone is rolling, others throw a spear, aiming for where they think the stone will stop rolling. Closest spear wins. That's awesome. I want to see Chunky so desperately. That's awesome. Full schedule of events at thecherokeeholiday.com. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Miller County native would serve 28 years in the U.S. military. Woodrow Wilson Crockett was born in 1918. After graduating from Dunbar High School, he joined the Army, serving in its first African-American field artillery unit. Crockett transferred to the Tuskegee Institute in 1942 and became one of the famed Tuskegee Airmen. He flew 149 combat missions in Italy and was later on the crew of a B-17 bomber that participated in atomic tests in the Marshall Islands. After flying 45 missions during the Korean War, Crockett became a test pilot, becoming one of the first to fly a jet at Mach 2. He retired in 1970, having logged 520 combat hours and more than 5,000 hours of flight time. In addition to numerous military honors, Crockett received an honorary doctorate from UA Little Rock and is in the Arkansas Aviation and Black Halls of Fame. He died in 2012 and is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. For the 21st time, Samaritan Community Center, with the help of many friends, is preparing backpacks for children heading back to school. The backpacks are filled with supplies students will need over the course of the next nine months. The hard work and partnerships culminate with Saturday's 21st annual Fresh Start Backpacks for Kids event. About 4,000 backpacks are expected to be given to students. Distribution of tickets for those backpacks began in June. Shannon Green, Business Development Manager at Samaritan Community Center, is with me. Shannon, welcome to Ozarks at Large. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. I mentioned that the event is coming on Saturday. Ticket distribution began in June, but I'm thinking to get 4,000 backpacks ready for students going back to school, you probably have to start working on this before June. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. It's one of those things you kind of you finish the event and you start thinking about it next. So it is something that's kind of yearly. Um, you know, I try to um, connect with folks in the community and get donations throughout the year, um, purchase backpacks as they're on clearance, you know, maybe November and December and start thinking about it. Um, so it's, it's a tedious, fun project, but it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it takes a lot of planning and organization of um, the community and gathering the school supplies and vendors and suppliers and companies and churches and individuals and families all coming together just to look on these kiddos and these families um, to help them be prepared for their first day back to school. What what items go in these backpacks? And I mean, I guess it depends because if you're headed into first grade or fifth grade, it might be a different backpack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we try to make it as easy as possible. Um, you know, we should put basic supplies. So, you know, an elementary kid, kindergarten through fourth, um, it's going to have, you know, those colors, those crayons, those pencils, the erasers, and paper, pocket folders with prongs. You know, just those basic items that, you know, those kindergartners and first graders and um, third graders need. But then as they go into middle school, they kind of need more composition notebooks, mm. um, you know, um, more items that we kind of add to it. And then you know, when you get in high school, it switches again. Um, and we want to make sure that kids have mechanical pencils, um, colored pencils, some extra pens like red, blue, black. Um, so when they're writing papers or things like that, they have those tools that they need. Um, and so then high school, they switch their paper and they want, you know, college spiral, college wide blues, college composition. And so we try to add those items into those older kiddos. Boy, that's a long list of items you just had. I imagine this does help ease some back to school expenses for families. It does. Um, and many families, you know, um, live pay- paycheck to paycheck. Um, and so knowing that you've got, you know, multiple kids and um, families living with families these days, and it just takes a relief um, off their mind to know, hey, I don't need to worry about a new backpack or the school supplies or things like that. So um, it, we enjoy helping the community, and then it helps them and it eases their mind so then they can um, pay those doctor bills or pay the rent or pay their utility bills. Any idea how many volunteers and how many partners for this project you have over the course of a year? That's a good question. (laughs) Um, This year, I think we've had um, about 13 sponsors, um, which is we've never had this many support, but this much support. Um, It's amazing. Um, Then, you know, we've got the booth. There's probably originally I had probably about 55, 60 booths. Um, a couple have, you know, something has come up, um, but I mean, it's, this is just, we're going to have probably about 300 volunteers there. Wow. Um, at least staff and volunteers, but, um, it's going to be exciting. It's, it's going to be, you know, fun. And, and then kiddos, you know, put on that backpack, they walk off, 
you know, you got some kindergartners that the backpack's bigger than them. <laughs> and then, you know, they're excited or they get, you know, their first haircut or, you know, kids are wanting to come and get their haircut and, you know, get freshened up for their first day back to school. So it's exciting. And finally, I know that this is a big year-round planning. You have the event on Saturday, but community, uh, Samaritan Community Center has activities and events and projects throughout the year, right? Snack packs and other programs? We do. Um, Samaritan Community Center um, has multiple programs. Our Snack Packs for Kids program is probably our biggest, most well-known. It's making sure that kiddos that are at high risk for hunger when school is in session um, will receive a snack pack um, that takes care of food for the weekend to make sure that that kiddo that's at high risk has access to food. Um, we never know who the kiddos are, and um, we just are here to help those families and those kids. Um, it gets delivered to the schools, and then the schools are able to get that to the kiddo and get it into their backpacks. So when they leave Friday, they have those food items to have for the weekend. Um, we have our farm um, where we harvest, you know, food and fruit and veggies to help our cafe, help our choice pantry our Samaritan market where families can come in and pick and choose um, a groceries and fresh produce. Um, our cafe prepares fresh meals Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays um, in Springdale and Rogers. Um, we also have a dental clinic um, for adults that do not have dental coverage. Um, you know, our Samaritan shops are part of us. Um, so, you know, those donations in the community help us continue to feed families in the community as well. So making those donations of slightly used items, um, getting support from vendors and suppliers to donate, um, all stays here locally to help us to continue to feed those kiddos, to feed families and help families. Shannon Green is Business Development Manager at Samaritan Community Center. The organization's 21st annual Fresh Start Backpacks for Kids event is Saturday. You can learn more about all their programs at samcc.org. Shannon, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we take a trip to visit ancient Roman sites in Tunisia and Sicily. We haven't had the technology to make these places speak the way we can now, like through, a, through an interactive 360 uh, experience, it very much immerses you in the site. And I think, well, why do I need to care about that is because, wow, so much of the ancient Mediterranean is the Mediterranean now. Over the summer, researchers from the University of Arkansas World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures Department used video gaming technology to create 360-degree immersive virtual tours. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth will have more for us tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on KUAF. All right, we're not using video game technology, but we do have a new game that you can play. That's true. So there's that game that the New York Times has. Uh-huh. Where you, it's a five-letter word, and then you start with, I start with the same word every day, raise, and then it tells you which ones are in the right place, which ones. Anyway, we have a version of that. Yes, you can go to KUAF.com. You'll find a little graphic that looks like the game you're familiar with. Click that, uh, click that photo there, and, uh, and you can join us every day. Every day we've got a new puzzle, um, and the words tend to correlate with previous stories you've heard here on Ozarks at Large. So if you're a regular listener, you might have a leg up. And, you know, 
the downside to that New York Times game is once it's done, you can't play again until tomorrow. Well, now you can. Now you've got a second one. That's right. Yesterday's word was prism, by the way. It was. I got it in three. I read the script before I got to play. <laughs> it was uh, your story that it was linked to. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. I don't know what the word is today. So I haven't done it yet either. Uh, send your... Uh, Send your scores to us at uh, at Instagram, instagram.com slash KUAF underscore radio. Let us know how you did. Yeah, this is Andy Winger. I'm calling from Bella Vista. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. I am Nora Cully, a seventh grader from Haas Hall Academy. Thank you for all that you do. This is Ray Dean Trees Nearing. I love you, KUAF. My name is Rebecca Cavanaugh calling from Springdale, Arkansas. Thank you so much to Public Radio. Thanks. Hey, KUAF, it's Blytheimer from Fayetteville. Thanks for letting us call in. Bye. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Wesley. Contributors today include Anna Pope, Daniel Carruth, and Mark Christ. Our general manager at KUAF is Lee Wood. Special thanks to our colleagues for their help with the reporting as well at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock in Central Arkansas. And thank you for being with us for the past 13 years. It's Today is the 13th anniversary of Ozarks at Large shifting from a few times a week to six times a week, becoming a daily show. Yeah, uh, it's a... Uh, that's- not something to sneeze at. That's that's worth that's worth talking about. Um, roughly forty six hundred shows in those thirteen years. Wow, that's that's more than that's more than I expected. <laughs> well, and here to show you the difference between a daily show and a show that started once a week, then twice a week, then we'd be three times a weekend sometimes. By my really rough estimate, before we went daily, about three thousand shows mm. of Ozarks at Large, and that was. Well, I've been doing the show for 34 years. Help me. Or 33. So about... 20-ish? Yes. So about 20 years. And in 13 years, we've surpassed how many. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the reason we're able to do a daily show like this is with support and listeners like you. So if this is something that you rely on, if this is something that, you know, you depend on for your news, your entertainment, your arts and culture news... Let us know by supporting us. You can go to supportkuaf.com and uh, let us know how much you rely on this daily reporting. And I have to say a thank you to everyone who works on the show now and everyone who's worked on it in the past uh, 13 years who helped us, you know, keep this going as a daily program for 13 years. What's a 13th anniversary gift? Surely there is one. Uh, a, a, a nonprofit donation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that's it, but, you know, yeah. it's acceptable. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We'll be here for uh, a good while longer. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. The Arkansas Natural Sky Association will host the Arkansas Dark Sky Festival September 14th through the 16th on Bear Creek south of the Buffalo National River, Arkansas's only international dark sky park. There will be a constellation tour, viewing of the Milky Way, and Arkansas-born Dr. Amber Strawn will share her research using the James Webb Space Telescope. Information at darkskyarkansas.org.